invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We're going to be referring to 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well as Titus chapter 1. But as we go through these qualifications for the office of elder, we are in this part of the study primarily following the order that's presented in Titus chapter 1. And so as we return to the examination of what the Bible teaches about the office of elder, we especially now having looked at what an elder is, we look at his qualifications. And in order that we might maximize the time that's allotted to us, I'm not going to give, as I often do, something of an introduction, something of a teaser, because we have a lot of territory that we need to cover this afternoon. And before we do this, let us now pray for the help and the grace of God. Most blessed and holy God, we do thank you that you have been pleased to raise up those that you have chosen to shepherd your people. And yet we at the same time confess that many times those who lead your people fall short of what they ought to be, even as Abijah did. We confess that many times that even we who have been installed in the office of elder, we slip and we are reminded of those ways in which we ought to be more and more conformed to what your word says. We pray that you would therefore guide us concerning future leaders and also concerning us who are those that are leaders already in your church. May we be like the psalmist of whom we just, with whom we just sang, that our houses would be places where righteousness would prevail, and even in places where the world does not see us, that we would be men of integrity, men of those that uh, are righteous in all of our ways. Bless us, we pray, with help not only as pastors also, but also as people, that we would consider that all of these qualifications are a call to every one of us to a life of holiness and devotion unto you. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, as we go through these qualifications, we began, and that the outlines that were distributed uh, just I've summarized at the very beginning of the outline without all the details the fact that we are at this point considering what is in, we've entitled an irreproachable life. And the key word is blameless and above reproach in Titus chapter 1 and verses 6 and following. And before we come to this, I want you to just notice how that word occurs. Titus chapter 1. In verse 6, he says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be, and again he uses the same word, blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. And so as we think about the fact that he is blameless. We are not saying that he has to be sinless, but there must be no just cause of reproach upon the man and upon the gospel that he preaches. And this lack of reproach applies to two areas of his life. The first area is his home life that is mentioned in this chapter and also in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And so there is to be an irreproachable home life. He is to be the husband of one wife. He must not be a polygamist he must have one woman in his heart and that alone. And that also he must have faithful children. He has, must have those that are not accused of debauchery. They must not be prodigal children that waste their lives on pleasures and bring a testimony upon the elder, and especially this pertains to children that are still living in the home of their father. And then having spoken about the irreproachable home life that he is to have, we began also to look at the second aspect of this irreproachable life, that he is to have exemplary personal character. And Paul spends more time on this than anything else in these uh, two chapters where he deals with these qualifications. And why does he do this? Well, as Merrill Tenney once put it, you cannot separate truth from the one who preaches it to you. The two things are together, the life of the man and the word that he preaches. And there must be, first of all, the absence of certain crippling vices. And these are mentioned in Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, 3, 
There must be, as we saw in our last study, the absence of obstinate opinionatedness. We must not be self-willed or arrogant, as we read in Titus 1. He must not be a man that is so cocksure that he never imagines he can ever be wrong. must not be so dogmatic on every issue that he can't distinguish between his own opinion and scripture. There must not be this kind of obstinate opinionatedness. And then we also saw in our last study that there must not be in him abrasive hot-headedness, stated variously in various translations. And we, there are different words, actually, that use this, and they all kind of hub around the same theme. Uh, he is not to be quick-tempered, or not soon angry, as some translations put it. He's not to be given to wine, not violent, not pugnacious, not quarrelsome, uncontentious. And all of these words speak to the issue that he must not be a person that's always in a fight, either with his fists or with his words. As Warren Wearsby writes very perceptively, pastors should be peacemakers, not troublemakers. Short tempers do not make for long ministries. And then now we come to a third item that must not be in him and as we consider these crippling vices, and this is new material. We also see that these passages, both of them stress that the, there must not be in him covetous greed. And so we read in verse 7, Titus 1.7, for a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. Same thing is found in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 8. He is not to be greedy for money, as I just read, or as the ESV puts it, not greedy for gain, or not, sordid, not fond of sordid gain, as the New American puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 2, Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseer, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. The word that is translated here, not greedy for money, it means that just that. It simply means greedy for money. It was used in secular Greek literature of those that take from others, even though they themselves have an abundance. And it refers to those especially that make their money discreditably. The money they get, as the King James puts it, and there's something good about this old translation, is this filthy lucre. There's something filthy about the way they got their money. And in getting or keeping his money, filthy sins cleave to his fingers. He's a servile man-pleaser, perhaps, or miserly stingy. He's lying like Achan and, and like Gehazi. Or maybe even murder attaches itself to his fingers, as it was with Ahab and Judas. And when this word is used of teachers, it depicts those that adapt their teaching to the desires of the heroes, their, excuse me, their, their hearers, in order that they might get more money. They don't want to offend anybody. They want to have lots of people in their churches. They want the coffers to be full. And so they make sure they don't say anything that offends anybody that might stick around and want to contribute. And Titus is instructed here that elders must not be characterized by that which was so common in Crete. The Roman poet Livy, he said, the Cretans are as eager for riches as bees for honey. And so this was a problem on the island of Crete. And it's, of course, a problem all throughout the world and throughout all ages. In 1 Timothy 3.3, using a synonym, Paul says that an overseer must be free from the love of money, as the New King James puts it, or as the, word new, or as the New America puts it, or not covetous, as the New King James puts it. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, the same word for covetousness is used in contrast to another concept. He says, let your conduct be without covetousness, that's the same word there, and be content with the things that you have. So the opposite of being covetous is being contented with what you have. And likewise, in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 through 10, contentment with God and his provisions is commended as the antidote to the love of money and the insatiable desire for riches. Now in a moment, I want to ask you, I want to get your response about why this is so important. But especially, I want to just mention as before I give you an opportunity to stress why it's important, 
Uh, I want to just say, how is it then that this greed manifests usually itself in, in a minister? One way is by an inordinate concern for his salary. Another thing is inordinate attention given to fixing up his home, to the neglecting of other responsibilities. He's always spending all kinds of money and all kinds of time, most of the time perhaps fixing up his house. Or it could be a man that he's always reading the, the stock markets because that's a big part of his life. He's, he's got his heart set up on business affairs. He's always thinking about how to save money, how to invest money. He's, a part, he's preoccupied with the market trends. And he, he devotes an inordinate amount of time reading about all these kinds of things because his mind is all set about money. Or maybe it shows itself in the way in which he always has to have the best. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes a better quality thing that will last longer is a better investment. But what I'm talking about is somebody that can't be content with anything that's less than the very best, whether it be in his home improvements or whether it be the car that he drives or the clothing that he wears. And this is a grievous sin. It entangles one's heart on the, with the earth. It, it leads to many other sins. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves through with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love. So I want to just now ask you, before we move on here, why is this vice so important? Why is it that it must not be characteristic of a pastor? In what ways will it cripple a man's ministry if he is covetous? Yes, Brian. Okay, money becomes another god. Amen. It uh, becomes the thing that you, you worship, you serve, you devote your life to rather than the Lord God. So how can he be a man that is serving the, how can he be called a man of God who serves God and then have, have another God? Anything else? Yes, John. Huge temptation. But, uh, yeah, so especially he's not going to want to trim. He's not going to want to have. If he if he thinks of some wealthy givers, he's not going to want to offend them. I know that uh, my dad's ministry in Iowa was the, the richest man in the church. He'd gotten every ministry in and he got them all out. He just had this. He was a divisive man. He had to be dealt with, and so there wasn't any choice. So half the church was lost. Faithfulness had to deal with it. And if, if money was, was, was my dad's God, then he wouldn't have dealt with that. Anything else? Yes, John. You don't have the things that you see others have. You're going to feel like, why am I, why am I denying myself so much here? And uh, maybe I should just, just get do something different. And sometimes it leads him to start doing something different with his time. Yes. But uh, his heart is disheartened. Yes, uh, Michael. Okay. Uh, all you got to do is turn on your television to see what's being preached on Sunday nights sometimes and you see that there, there's, it, it's just like there's a deal for money every single time now, it doesn't necessarily mean that money ne must never be preached on but it needs not. it shouldn't be the main burden of your ministry and uh 
I'm astounded that the people keep on going to those churches. By droves, it seems like. But I think that it drives some other people away. Well, as we think about uh, this theme, um, obviously this is something that is implied by what one of you said, that if a man is given to covetousness, his preaching, his pastoral decisions will be influenced by monetary concerns, going easy on the big givers in the church. And this is something that characterizes false teachers. Titus 1.11, Paul writes to about these deceivers. And this is right in the context of just giving these qualifications, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest gain. A man like that will easily be bribed. A lover of money will say and do anything for his gain. And he won't be a man of integrity. Samuel could appeal to his integrity at the end of his ministry. He could say, from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? He, had a, he could stand before all of Israel. Think of it, the, the hundreds of thousands that were there in Israel, and not one person could say, yes, you were a man that betrayed. You, you took a bribe on this. I saw you take that money under the table. But a covetous man is easily manipulated by these kinds of concerns. He's happy to teach whatever will make him popular and bring in the cash. And this is one of the great big problems of the church growth movement because church leaders are more concerned with marketing the church than they are about faithfully proclaiming the word of God. And also this sin is behind the action of schismatics and heretics that leads others astray seek to gain a following for themselves. We read in Romans 16, 18, where Paul warns against teachers who do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. Now, why is it, we have to ask, why so many mainline churches who know better, who know what the word of God teaches, are willing to accommodate those that are pressing for homosexuals to be ministers in those churches? Well, they don't want to drive any out. They don't want to drive... They don't want to offend people, and so they uh, compromise their message, you see, in order to keep such people in their churches. This is what's behind that teaching, such false teaching. 2 Peter 2, 3, he says, Through covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you. They use their ministries to make merchandise off of their hearers. And so many televangelists, they're so obsessed with manipulating their viewers into impoverishing themselves and enriching the ministry of the preacher, that what does it do? It brings all Christian preachers to shame, and they are associated with it. It tars and feathers all of us. It makes us all look like we are money grubbers as preachers. Covetous pastors, they have their hearts set on personal gain rather than the spiritual gain of the flock. Instead of laying our lives down, as John mentioned, they're get discouraged if, if, if things are not going their way. And this sort of desire, it distracts them. It steals their hearts away from their duties. Remember how Paul says that we are, like ministers are, are to be like those that are in warfare. No one engaged in warfare entangles themselves with the affairs of this life. There's a very real sense in which the man that is a soldier, he's away from his wife, he's away from his children. He can't be at home fixing up his house. He's torn away from those things. And although there is the care of a wife and a godly pastor, there is the care of his house. It isn't supposed to look like the most sloppy house on the, on, the, on the block. Yet there's a sense in which he is divorced from those things as his main, main goal in life. And also, it'll, it'll be impossible to raise others from earth to heaven if he himself is bound to the earth. And just to quote the Puritan expositor Thomas Taylor, is he, fit, is he a fit man to raise others to heaven whose own heart is rooted in the earth? How shall he persuade others that godliness is great gain if gain is all his godliness? With what heart can he pull other men out of the world when it is one the strongest and most inward heart hold upon his own heart? This one lust unfits him in all his duties." These are some of the crippling vices that must not be present in an elder. There must not be obstinate opinionatedness. 
abrasive hot-headedness, or covetous greed. And these three vices Paul singles out are some of the main ways that a man may be mastered by various sins of self, the sins of pride and anger and greed. And the man that's in the grip of these sins, he shows that he's not willing to deny himself and take up the cross of Christ and follow him. He's unfit to care for the souls of others. He's a selfish man at heart. And men that pander to the sins of self, to the sins of pride and anger and greed, they're careless about the, the, those sins in other people's souls. How can the world, if, he, if he's careless about those sins himself, how can he preach about those things to others? In an ordination sermon that was preached back in 1752, entitled The Character of a Pastor According to God's Heart, John Shaw, he said this, Ministers of this character, immoral or unholy in their lives, are habitually careless of their own souls. Is it probable then that such as these will take faithful care of the souls of hearers? If not afraid of running into the fire themselves, will they be zealous to pull their hearers out of the flames? If they do not tremble at the thought of trifling themselves with heaven and hell, with salvation and damnation, will they faithfully warn their hearers against the danger of doing so? Well, these are three main sins that are mentioned, and no doubt Paul could go into others. Uh, he could go into sexual sin, which destroys many ministries, but those three are the main ones that he concentrates on here in these two chapters. Well, having noted the absence of certain crippling vices, we want to move on now this afternoon in the second place to consider that there needs to be in the exemplary life the presence of certain essential virtues. And the first of these virtues that are, is listed here in, in uh, it's actually in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll come back to Titus. But it is gentle forbearance. And... Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. Let me just read that verse. He's to be not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle. There's the contrast. But gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. And this word that's translated gentle, New King James, New American, ESV, all three versions, it's a trait that's set over and against the abrasive hot-headedness described in the first part of the verse. A person that's violent, a person that's striker, a person that's pugnacious, contentious. And as opposed to this man that's willing to fight at the drop of a hat, he's always contending for his own rights and opinions. The elder is to be the opposite. He is to be gentle. And the man of this disposition, instead of fighting for his rights, he graciously yields to others. James 3 and verse 17 uses the same word when he says that we are to be gentle, and here he explains what it means, willing to yield. And so this is not just a matter of just, you know, being kind of like, you know, a little mealy mouse kind of person, gentle in that way. But it's a person that he doesn't always have to have his way about everything. When he's slighted, when he suffers personal grievances, when his feelings are disregarded, when his legitimate rights even sometimes are overridden, he isn't always pressing his rights, you see, to the utmost. He's not like the person of the world that wants to sue everybody for every wrong that ever occurs to him and sue them for all that they've got. He's the opposite of that kind of a person. He doesn't champion his rights. Aristotle, the Greek uh, philosopher, he contrasts the man with this quality with uh, an opposite word in the Greek. And that word stands for a person that he stands up for his, his rights, for every last legal right he stands for. And Aristotle says this word gentle is the opposite of that person that stands up for his own rights. He's not the contentious litigant who won't be satisfied with anything less than his full rights and even more. Well, the Greek word that Paul uses, it's also been rendered sweet reasonableness. It's, it's, it's a Greek word that you can't really pick out one word that translates it. It brings out the whole flavor of it. And this word, this translation, sweet reasonableness, I think is a beautiful translation of this beautiful word. With respect to clear-cut orthodoxy as opposed to heresy, obedience to God's law as opposed to sin, he's unbending about those things. He doesn't compromise biblical doctrines, biblical practices. He, he'll dig his heels in on those matters. 
But in his dealings with others, he's not inflexible about every last little detail. He, managed forbear- he shows forbearance with their faults. He's not easily provoked. He's patient. He's considered with respect to their blemishes and their, 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 their struggles. And when he comes in contact with irritating and difficult people, he considers their weakness. He tries to find an excuse, excuse in his mind for their behavior. He's therefore he's gentle with them instead of coming down upon them on every issue like a ton of bricks. So why then is it so essential? Well, it's necessary to deal with sinners that have blemishes and faults. You can't be in the ministry without dealing with difficult people. You know, we can say, well, Lord, just give us all the nice ones. Give us all the ones that are all, they've been trained for 20 years in other Reformed Baptist churches, and they got all lined up, and now they're bringing them to us. Well, God doesn't build the church that way. He brings people out of the world and out of sins and out of habits that are ingrained. And sometimes they're very irritating and difficult to deal with. And so a man needs to learn some gentleness in leading a man along. Jesus didn't come down like a ton of bricks on the disciples on every case. Often the ministry of the gospel or the minister of the gospel is called upon to suffer misunderstanding. People speak evil of him. And the temptation is to strike back. That's very great. Or maybe even to take a shot from the pulpit. Or after maybe hurt maybe for many times, that pastor could be tempted to harden his heart against others, lest they burn him again, lest they hurt him again. It's just kind of a natural self-protective method. So we just kind of, if if we just kind of put ourselves in a little bit of a cocoon, the evangelist uh, Vance Havner, who preached in the early 1900s, he once said a preacher should have the mind of a scholar, the heart of a child, and the hide of a rhinoceros. His biggest problem is how to toughen his hide without hardening his heart. A piece of wonderful wisdom there in those words. And also, elders have to deal with each other. They function as co-elders. And they often have differences of perspective about this or that. Gentleness is also necessary to bring balance to our preaching. There's a place for hard-hitting sermons. There's a place for bold, uh, probing preaching. False prophets only preach the smooth things. But this doesn't mean that every single one of our sermons need to be scolding sessions. It discourages the people of God. They can't take it that way. There has to be a balance in our ministry. Now, there are certain church members that, that look for that. There are certain church members, I think, that it's not a good sermon unless it's been a thrashing. But that's not the biblical, biblical perspective, you see. We must not forget, you see, that the same Jesus who fearlessly denounced hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he also invited burdened sinners to come to him, saying, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Pastors need to remember this. As John Blanchard put it, Jesus told Peter to feed his sheep, not to flog them. So, the first trait that's mentioned here in 1 Timothy 3, and now we come back to Titus 1, the first trait is that of gentle forbearance. But then the second trait is that of hospitality. There must be hospitable love. It's translated hospitable, or sometimes give it to hospitality in our various versions. And this is found in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. He needs not to be greedy for money and all these other things, but by way of contrast, verse 8, but hospitable, a lover of what is good. Now the word that's translated hospitable, it's made up of two Greek words, and one of them means love, and one of them means strangers. So the meaning of the word is love of strangers. In Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2, The writer to the Hebrews says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now it's very probable that the writer to the Hebrews, he has in mind that time when an angel visited. You remember the angel of the Lord came and he visited actually in the form of two angels. And the Lord was with two angels, I should say, and he came to Abraham. And he was going to tell Abraham that he was about to that Sarah was about to have a son, and also that the wickedness of Sodom was crying out for judgment. 
And when Abraham saw these angels, he thought they were, they just came in the form of men. Immediately, what does he do? He washes their feet. He tells a servant to bring in a calf and to cook it. He provides a sumptuous meal. And so he was hospitable to these strangers. Now, in New Testament times, it was very oftentimes dangerous to stay in an inn. And oftentimes, inns were places of immorality as well. And so they were places that many Christians would not want to go to. And so no traveling Christian, he, he, he would want to stay in that place. And Christians oftentimes even fleeing from persecution, they would need some place to stay. And because these visitors didn't have access to email, they didn't have telephones, they couldn't make a reservation in advance of some place they wanted to stay or some church, they would show up unannounced. And much like the visitors that came to Abraham's tent door, they would be strangers. So hospitality, it involved especially showing love to strangers. And even now, hospitality is not proven so much by just asking your friends over that can return the favor, but it's especially proven by inviting those that you've just met into your home. It's one of the best means that's available to show the love of Christ for lost sinners and lonely saints that come and visit our churches. Now the need for hospitality in the 20th century is not exactly the same. It's not there, or you can't find an inn, you can't find a motel, but it's just as great in other ways. It's true that we don't have the same danger to go, to, if we, to go stay in, in you know, the Best Western or whatever it is. Uh, large motels and hotels are not dangerous. They're not immoral places usually. But in an age in which people live in their little social cocoons, they don't even know their next door neighbors. In an age when people pass by one another without even acknowledging one another, they, they, they're lonely, they're isolated. And in such a setting, outgoing, warm, loving Christian hospitality, it makes a tremendous impression on outsiders. And you and I, we ought to begin to think of strangers that come in among us as guests. And in a society where hospitality is a lost art, an open door speaks volumes. And showing hospitality to strangers, it's a duty that falls upon all Christians, not just pastors. In Romans 12, the exhortation is given to all of us to be hospitable. Same thing in Hebrews 13. But in a heightened way, it's incumbent upon pastors that they be hospitable. And with respect to unconverted strangers... This is one of the ways they can break down prejudice and they can show that Christianity is open and warm. And with respect to the members of the pastor's church, it can be one of the best ways to gain an entrance into their hearts. He who teaches others, he who exercises oversight over others, he who has to go and reprove them sometimes for their sins, he needs to be open and loving to them so that they don't think that he's their enemy when he comes and addresses their sins or when he does so from the pulpit. He needs not to be morose and sour, but he needs to be a lover of men. He needs to be a person that's, that's, that it may, he may not be the people person that's going to get the award of the year for that. But at least he has, he, in various ways, he seeks to show that he cares for other people. And one way to show this is by an invitation to his home. There's other ways, by taking a visitor or a member out to lunch. Another way is by caring for others when they are gathered here in the worship by, by making sure that they, you go up to that person and you can spend time maybe at the lunch table with that person. There's a lot of different ways in which uh, this hospitality can be shown. And in some cases, it may even be necessary and good for a pastor to take in somebody into the home for a period of time in order to minister to the needs of that particular person. Well, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 8, the Greek word for hospitable is immediately followed by another word that's translated a lover of what is good. And this also needs to be emphasized. We're reminded of the list of good things in Philippians 4.8, which are the subject, we're to think about these things. What are we to think about? The things that are virtuous and, and a good report and so forth. And so Paul expounds, as it were, this lover of men, a lover of strangers, with another phrase in Titus 1.8, that he is to be a lover of what is good. Notice how they follow each other. Titus 1.8, he is to be hospitable, a lover of what is good. And 
a late 2nd century papyrus document, it renders this word a lover of virtue. Now we're reminded of the list of good things there in Philippians 4. And what this means is that there is to be a devotion in the heart of the, of the man of God to those things that are virtuous. He needs to, to, to love these virtues. He needs to wants to cultivate these virtues in other people. And this is to condition his hospitality. As George Knight observes, that overseer's love for people is always to be correlated with a love for what God wants his people to be. Not just that you love to have a, go have a cup of coffee with somebody and just chat about politics or whatever, but it's to want to see something good in that person developed and, and to be an instrument even of developing those things. You love that which is good. You, you encourage them in that which is good. You try, try to, to stir them up to it if you don't see it very much. He is, in, this, in his expression of care for people, this is to condition the way in which he reach, reaches out to people. Now, why is this so important? Well, let me just answer the question before we move on very quickly. People know that their pastor loves them. They're more ready to hear the word from him, especially when he has to reprove them, whether in his sermons or whether one-on-one. It's important because the godly conduct of an elder in the home is oftentimes best displayed there rather than in other contexts. And also because such hospitality is a great means of opening the hearts of strangers to the gospel. Well, we could dwell much, much along about this whole subject and obviously preach a whole sermon about hospitality. But I want to move on now uh, to a third grace that needs to be present in elders. And it is to be that of clear-headed sobriety. And in a moment, I'm going to ask you why this is so important, so just be thinking about this. Now, Paul uses two words to depict this trait. And the first word is the Greek word sophron. It's the word sober-minded, as the New King James translates it. And the New American translates it sensible in one place and prudent in the other place. And the ESV translates it as self-controlled. And uh, these are the translations of Titus 1, 8, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. But I think that the emphasis on being sober-minded and sensible, these are the better translations. He is to be a man of sound mind. He looks at things with biblical realism. In Mark 5 and verse 15, there was, you remember, the demon-possessed madman. And the Lord delivered him of that demon. And he was therefore clothed and in his right mind. That's the same word that's there. He no longer was raving mad, you see, and spewing out all kinds of nonsensical things. But now he saw things as they really were and could communicate them. He was in his right mind mind. He was a sober-minded person. Romans 12.3, Paul uses this word to uh, stress realistic self-assessment about our gifts. He urges us, not to, the believer, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And it's the idea of a person that's not governed by his passions and emotions, But he's open-eyed, he's clear-eyed and realistic about the way he looks at things. He's not given to knee-jerk decisions and emotional reactions that he always has to change because he got it wrong. He's not an elder, you see, that is given constantly to wild, foolish ideas lurching this way and that, depending on the latest thing that strikes his fancy. Yes, he needs to be a man that believes that God is the God of the impossible. He needs to see things that maybe go beyond what some people would think can be accomplished. But he needs to not mix this kind of faith. He needs to, I should say, he needs to mix this kind of faith with a good dose of common sense and realism. He needs to be a man of sound judgment and practical wisdom. And therefore, he will guide his course with prudence and circumspection and a balance that will appear in his speech, his gestures, his decisions, his interpretations, and in the whole of his life. In his book, The Ruling Elder, Samuel Miller, who was a great practical theologian, I think of Princeton years ago, he writes of the necessity of an elder possessing, and here I quote, practical Christian wisdom, which not only discerns what is right, 
but also adopts the best mode of doing it. It has often been observed that there is a right and a wrong way of doing the best things. The thing done may be excellent in itself, but it may be done in a manner at a time and attended with circumstances which will likely be uh, will beget disgust and repel and thus prevent all benefit. Hence a man who is characteristically eccentric, undignified, rash, precipitate, or indiscreetly talkative ought by no means to be selected as an ecclesiastical ruler. He will probably do more mischief than good. He will generally create more divisions than he heals and will rather generate offenses rather than remove them. And in his wisdom, it needs to go beyond having a realistic and practical understanding of, of how to do things. It needs to also, let me just add this, about this sober-mindedness, he needs to be a governed by a realistic and sober view of the realities of eternity. That's part of being sober-minded, seeing it, it, heaven and hell is at stake here. And so that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things that it has had, therefore be of sound mind, the same word is used there, and be sober unto prayer. So this is the first word that Paul uses, the word uh, sophron, which speaks about having a sound mind. And then he uses a second word, the word nephalion in 1 Timothy 3, 2. It's translated temperate in some versions, sober-minded in the English standard. And this word, it also has the meaning of sober, sober-minded, clear-headed, and originally referred to abstinence from alcohol. And yet, but as you see, as drunkenness is stigmatized in the next verse, I think it has a wider context. It's not just temperance in terms of your alcohol intake. When he says you need to be temperate, the word is, is I think, more particular than that. What it means is that he is a man of sound judgment. And it, it's connected with alcohol in this sense that he doesn't make decisions like a drunk man, like an inebriated man, as he makes his decisions. He's not like the drunk that staggers down the street late at night in the city, totally oblivious of the danger that's lurking around the corner. But a sober-minded man, he's, while he's not paranoid, he's fully alert to danger. He sees the situation as it is. This is the grace that Paul is talking about here as he speaks about this requirement. Now, let me just ask you, why is it so important that an elder manifest this clear-headed sobriety? Yes, Phil. like the little girl that walked away from the playground after a difficult time saying people, people just like you said you know, people are difficult especially sometimes even professing Christians and if the elder is knee jerk in his reactions and it's just, just one sided in his judgment he's not going to be able to deal with these situations same thing in, in big differences that emerge in the church the other reason why this is important Yes, Michael. Okay, yes. Yeah, he can, he can, he just, he, he doesn't help the fashions to heal like Phil was saying because sometimes even he himself will create them because of his jerking this way, the jerking that way. And people can be very uncomfortable and be very unsettled about that kind of leadership that's happening in the church. I one time read a book by one of these pastors, but it just seemed like he, he had to try every, you know, every, every third week or so, he's trying out something different. I can't imagine being a church life that was like that. I don't want to mention his name, but uh, anyway, a very famous preacher. Uh, yes, John.
sake of people just listening to the this, this online uh, was emphasized that the pastor needs to show consistency to give a sense of stability in the midst of uh, the changes that take place in life. I don't know if I expressed that very well, but anyway. Uh, anything else that anybody wants to mention before we move on? Well, let me just uh, underscore a few things. Uh, obviously, if he can't lead the church if he doesn't see things as God sees them. He can't give stable leadership if he's always lurching one way and then another. He can't counsel the sheep with varied problems unless he's a man of sound judgment. And apart from his grace, how is he going to be vigilant with an eye alert to spiritual needs, ready to warn the flock of spiritual danger? And I want to come to another grace that's mentioned, and it's that of consistent righteousness. And this is emphasized by the word just in the New King James in the American, and upright in the English Standard translations of Titus 1 8. 1.8 says he's to be hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded. We just looked at that, and the next word is just. Also, this word can be translated righteous. It's a person that lives in accordance with God's law, the basic meaning of just. And with reference to governmental laws, human laws, he obeys those laws, but supremely he lives in conformity to God's law. He's a law-abiding person. He's a man of integrity in all of his doings. He's honest in his dealings with everybody. He pays his bills. When he sells his car, he's honest about its defects. And when he buys somebody else's car, he doesn't try to, to dicker down the price by exaggerating its defects. He's not like the man described in Proverbs 20:14. It is good for nothing, cries the buyer, but when he goes, when he's gone his way, then he boasts. You know, he dares it down in front of the buyer, the seller, but then he tells everybody else, he boasts about how he, how he got such a great deal and how he bamboozled this guy into selling his car for almost nothing. Well, that's not integrity. That's not justice. Integrity in these matters is absolutely essential in pastors. Pastors can't do other people good if, if they're under an ethical cloud in any way. And uh, they'd be better off overpaying, you see, rather than bring anything into question like that. And the same integrity, it can be translated into the way he deals with disagreements in the church. He's equitable and fair in his judgments. And while I was doing some other work this past week, I inflicted upon myself the distasteful task of listening to congressmen debating an urgent issue was an issue I was very interested in. It was an urgent issue in, in, in Congress, and this was all on C-SPAN, about a three-hour debate. And adversarial congressmen and women, they would ask a question. They would say, give me a yes or no. And they refused to allow the witness to say, well, it's not quite yes or no. It's just so obvious. They weren't really interested in coming to the truth. They just wanted you see this to, to, to have a gotcha moment. It was patently obvious they weren't trying to learn. Others tore into these witnesses with character assassination. And this too I found exceedingly contrary to justice and honest analysis. There were others in this whole debate that simply tried to bring up instances where the other party had misbehaved as well. And this is totally irrelevant, you see, to the main point that the witnesses doesn't mean that these witnesses you see were dishonest and that their testimony was not true. Well, this, this showed, you see, the lack of fairness and the lack of open-mindedness, you see, and, and this principle of justice among these ones that were there upon that committee. Well, a pastor, you see, he, he must never behave in these ways. And even when he draws a conclusion that differs from the conclusion of another person that's come with maybe some kind of a complaint, that person needs to know he tried to listen to them, that he tried to be fair, he tried to, to sort things out in a dispassionate way. But if that member, you see, feels like this, this pastor is always blatantly biased and he's always closed-minded in that, he, he's going to get bitter more and more against the ministry. And so I think this is also part of what it is to be a just pastor. There is consistent righteousness in and about him. And then the next trait is that of devout consecration. We read in Titus chapter 1, and verse 8, 
the New King James, he is to be holy. The New American ES Standard, English Standard, he is to be devout. And I think probably devout is the better translation in these instances. And here the word is not used of the Greek word, it's not translating the Greek word hagios, which is the word that usually is translated holy, which speaks about separation, especially separation from sin. But the word Paul uses here is the word hasios. It's one pleasing to God, a pious person, a devout person. In 1 Timothy 1.9, the contrast is drawn between one who is hasios, or devout, and the one that's unholy and profane. The devout, consecrated man, he lifts up holy hands as he prays. You see, his holiness pertains to his devotion. 1 Timothy 2.8, he's a man eminent in piety. Now, one of the names in the Old Testament for God's spokesman is man of God. And Paul, who was thoroughly versed in Old Testament concepts, after speaking about the love of money and its attendant evils, he says to Timothy, but you, O man of God, he has that Old Testament idea, the man of God, you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, 1 Timothy 6.11. So the pastor, he needs to be a man that's been taught by God, a man who's consecrated to God by the daily surrender of his time and of his talents to God's service. And how contrary this is then to the unholy man in the pulpit. It is indisputable maxim, the sins of teachers are the teachers of sin. And to this we might add the life of the minister is the life of his ministry. So dear people, pray for your pastors, whether prospective pastors or present pastors. Pray that of them it will be evident that they have been in the presence of a holy God. Pray for men like Isaiah who have been in the presence of God, who cry out before God, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And pray that they will be those that the Lord sends, you see, as it were, a seraphim with a hot coal and touches their lips with the assurance, look, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Pray for a man like Moses who comes from the presence of the Lord shining with the glory of God. Pray for men that continually give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, Acts 6. Pray for men like Epaphras who was always laboring fervently in prayer, Colossians 4. Pray for the man that will be like Jacob, wrestling and making supplication as a prince who has power with God and prevails. Pray for a man who is a favorite in the courts of heaven because he's often there. Pray for a man who, as Titus 1 puts it, is devout. And then I want to just beg your indulgence to go just a few more minutes here. I'm going to have to just state very briefly this next one, discipline, self-control. I think it's something understood. The last word in Titus 1.8 is that he is self-controlled or as he is disciplined as it's translated in English Standard. And here is one of the fruits of the Spirit. The Spirit, Galatians 5 lists self-control. And it means simply self-mastery. It's illustrated by the discipline of the athlete as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. On a most elementary level, self-control, it refers to one's physical cravings, like with food and drink, and it surely includes self-control when one's testosterone levels are high, self-control in other areas, passionate impulses. Also, there should be self-control over his spirit. He who has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. Well, I could say more about that, that grace, but I want to just mention one more so that we can move on to the next major area of the study in our next study. There is also to be, among these graces, what we call dignified orderliness. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2, we are to be, and here we move here. This is, not, this is one that's not mentioned in Titus. It's mentioned in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2. It's translated of good behavior. 
in the New King James or respectable in the New American and the ESV. And the word is cosmos. It's related to a word that you've probably heard before, cosmos. We refer to the universe as the cosmos. And the word it describes the order of, of, the, of the, the universe. It's not everything flying every which way, but there's orderly uh, orbits and so on that is out there. That's why it's called an orderly, it's a cosmos. And this is an adjective form of that. It's somebody who is orderly. And so this trait, it wasn't exclusively Christian. It describes the person that conducts himself or herself with decorum. As the ancient Greek writer Sophocles said of, of a certain woman, Chrysostomus, when she runs quickly for joy, she does it neglecting decorum. In other words, she probably had to pull up her, her robe and so on to be able to run. And so, so she wouldn't have looked, she wouldn't have had decorum in the way in she, which she ran. That's the idea of the word. It could also be translated honorable. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 9, Paul writes that women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word translated modest is this same word. And then he goes on to say, and, uh, and some translations could put it, the English translation, ESV puts it this way, decorous apparel with a propriety and moderation. And so the word, it implies a well-ordered appearance or a well-ordered demeanor. The English word decorous, I think, really captures it very well. Something is decorous, maybe you're not really familiar with that word, is, 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 is decorous, a person who has decorous conduct is dignified in what they do. And their manners, their appearance, they don't, they don't run around in sloppy clothes. And so there's this dignified propriety in their conduct and their manners. And likewise, the Greek word, it cosmios, it applies the absence of public hab habits that bring disgust and disrespect. So pastors, we mustn't turn people off to the gospel by the habits that evoke disgust. At least in public, the pastor shouldn't be hacking, snorting, and chewing his mouth with his mouth wide open or chewing his fingernails. And he must not be slovenly or outlandish, either one, in his appearance. It could be the extremes you see of just being like a slob or being dowdy and never having anything that looks halfway decent. Or there can be, you see, something that's outlandish. We, t we tend to run to extremes. I remember, I'm going to tell a little story on Pastor Hill here. I should have run it by him. I may not, he, maybe you can ask him about whether I got it quite right. But I remember when the two of us, we had both were supplying the pulpit way out in, in Lethbridge that somehow um, uh, his suit didn't get there. Is that, is that the way it was? Yeah, his suit didn't get there. And so the, the only, and this was in a context where they had these, these reformed people that everything had to be black on Sunday. You had to have a black suit, black tie, and everything. So, and the, and the, the guy that had a suit the best size for him, so he, he went to church to preach in his black suit with a black tie that was kind of turning green because it was so old. And that, that, was, that was the attitude, you see, of what, what was supposed to be holy. You see, this isn't what Paul is talking about, having to be just like this. On the other hand, we're not to be outlandish. Clothes that might be appropriate for a New Year party, they're not fitting for the pulpit. There's one comedian, and I don't begrudge him as a comedian to do this, but I particularly enjoy this particular comedian. He likes to wear these sparkly jackets that obviously I wouldn't wear in a pulpit. And he often gets comments about these sparkly jackets that he wears. And he says he dresses that way because he dresses like an overweight figure skater. And the point was, as the pastor, he needs to know what's in place, what's the kind of clothes that should be worn, the kind of behavior that ought to be, and it, so that he doesn't bring disgust in the eyes of the people as they watch his behavior. So when the people of God love their pastor, they're proud of him in the right sense of the word. He must not be an embarrassment to them with his bad breath that he never tries to remedy. Sometimes he may not know about it. He needs to correct it. He must not be embarrassed them because of the way he dresses or because of his disgusting habits. Paul sought to conduct himself in such a manner that could be described as a nothing giving offense that the ministry not be blamed. Well, this is the character of the true, true man of God. Paul takes us up to the top of the mountain. He stresses that the man of God must be devout. He needs to be a man that spends time in God's presence and it shows in his preaching and his demeanor. 
but he also brings us down to the earthly and the mundane. Pastors mustn't chew fingernails in public. And so may God supply the kind of pastors that are described in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for many decades to come. This is what our depraved generation needs. As Ian Bounds puts it, the church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. Pray for better men. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the detailed set of qualifications that we have just studied. And we confess, Lord, that while all of us strive to be these, to fit these qualities that are mentioned, even as pastors, we fall short of what we want to be. We pray that you would make us to be better men, that you would make us more and more conform to the perfect model of everything we just studied this afternoon, even our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that this would be so, that the gospel might be commended, that the gospel might go forth with power and with grace, and that the message would be adorned by the lives of those who preach it. May it be so both now and for generations to come. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior.